Welcome to Smart Humans with Slava Rubin, presented by Vincent. In this Alt Investing podcast, Slava talks to amazing minds about their investment journey and finds out what it takes to make it in the markets. And now, here's your host and smart human, Slava Rubin. Hello and welcome to the show. We are super excited for today's guest. I've known Scott for a while. He is an incredible entrepreneur, runs in a great company in the art space, but knows way more beyond that. Uh, we've been trying to get him on for a while. And so thank you very much, Scott Lynn. Welcome to the show. Thanks for uh, thanks for having me. I feel like we're sitting at, uh, sitting at lunch. <laughs> That's right. This will just be a casual conversation just like that. Um, yeah. So just like to start off, can, can, can you let us know about how uh, you got into alternative investing? How did it all get started for you? Um, what was your entry point? Yeah, I mean, look, I guess my entry point with alts is really art um, specifically. And, uh, you know, I've been collecting art for nearly 20 years, um, have, a, have a top 100 collection personally, um, have always thought it's a really interesting asset class. Um, you know, for me personally, has been has been a core part of of my portfolio, and uh, uh, you know, I think as an entrepreneur, you, you never really do sort of traditional things like you know, basic sort of fixed income strategies or, or um, uh, public equities. Although I, I do a lot more of that now that I'm that I'm older, but you know, I think you're always looking for ways to find alpha, and I think I think a lot of that exists in in alts. So Scott. Uh, the audience really loves to know where it all got started. So can you let us know how you got into alternatives and alternative investing? Yeah, I mean, I, I guess my experience with alts is really is really art. So I've been collecting art for the past the past twenty years. Um, it's always been a, a significant part of, of my portfolio overall. And um, you know, that's really how I came up with the idea of Masterworks was just looking at my own art collection, seeing how it has appreciated historically, and then thinking about how to. Um, productize that or make that available to, to other types of investors. When did you start investing in art? Young. Uh, you know, so I had my first company when I, when I was in high school. We, we created uh, a game that became the most popular game on the internet. And uh, What was that? Yeah, it was this uh, g- game called Tree Loot. For, for those who were in their mid-40s, I remember these uh, Punch the Monkey banners on the internet. Um, so that was that was me when I was a kid, and uh, yeah, I made money really young, and I don't know, like any kid, I guess, didn't really know where to put it, so started buying expensive stuff like art. Um, and Do you remember art. your first real piece of art? Yes, I remember the first great painting I bought, which was a, uh, a Marc Chagall painting titled uh, Le Pont Neuf. Um, that was the first great painting that I bought. And why that one at that time? You know, it, 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 I mean, I was, I was always looking at everything from an investment perspective. Um, I thought I got a good deal on that painting. Um, you know, I probably thought it was a better deal than it really, really was. But it's funny, I was, I was, at, uh, I was at Sotheby's, I can't remember how many years ago, standing in a room, and that painting was hanging there for sale. So whoever bought it or someone after them... Uh, subsequently decided to, uh, to sell it. It's a small world. Oh, so you don't own that painting that you bought a long time ago? No, no, no. I, I sold it a long time ago, yeah. So just for listeners, do you remember how much you paid for it when you bought it? I, I think I paid $325,000, uh, which was a big number for me back, back, back then. 
I can't remember what it was what it was selling selling for recently. I think it was it was over a million. I can't I can't remember how much. Incredible. And um, you mentioned that you first had a startup, and then you had the money to buy the art. So you had the game. Was there other startups, or was it one startup and then the art? Uh, you know, I started buying art really young, right? So I was, I was buying art when I was, uh, when I was, I think, I think as young as 19, uh, 20 years old. Um, I kept buying and, and lots of collectors know this, but you, you know, your taste sort of evolves over time, just like anything. Um, you know, made a lot of mistakes. I think one of the, the typical mistakes that collectors make is they go out and they buy brand name artists who, who, uh, they recognize, right? So a typical example of that would be Picasso. Uh, the thing that most people don't realize is that Picasso during his lifetime made 65,000 objects. So, you know, just wow. buying a Picasso in itself isn't really significant. You really have to buy the right, the right object. I had no idea. Pica- Who has that much time to make 65,000 <laughs> objects? You, if you ever see photos of the guy, I mean, you know, he's, he's photographed in rooms where there's just like hundreds of things around him, paintings, drawings, sculptures, like everything to him was art. Wow. Um, so, you know, you were successful at a young age. Were you thinking to put any of that money into real estate, into debt, into other collectibles, sports cards, uh, angel investing? Yeah, I mean, I so I've always been an entrepreneur, right? So most most of my wealth and most of, of the money I've I've invested has been in in businesses that I've started um, uh, over time. So that's that's always my primary focus. I, I think outside of that, it's pretty basic, right? I've always followed a, a barbell principle where when I when I have extra capital, I, I put it in super conservative stuff, and then I try to make bets where I can control the outcome or where I have. Uh, domain expertise. So that's usually how I've approached things. How I still still think about investing generally. Uh, where does that uh, conservative bucket go? Is that into real estate or what other types of investments go into that you know, conservative today bucket? Today I like. Um, I, 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 I look t- t- today's world is hard, right? Like I, I think it's very hard to figure out where to put money specifically, but. I think the quote-unquote conservative bucket, if you just exclude fixed income and, and just conclude that it's generally uninteresting, um, are indexed, in, index strategies that have tax-loss harvesting uh, built into them. So I think since we're, we're moving into an era of probably higher taxes, I think loss harvesting strategies are, are interesting for certain, certain people. And this is specifically in the public markets you're referring? Yep. Yeah, so there's you know depending on on whose product like Goldman has a has a product that I've been using recently which um, effectively tracks the S and P but produces an extra six seven eight percent of alpha on an annualized basis and just just losses that that it kicks out. Oh, that's a great uh, great little nugget. Um, so that's interesting in today's world. You know, maybe maybe fixed income over the next two or three years becomes more interesting again. Um, yeah. And outside of like your own residences, do you look at real estate as investment opportunities or you kind of stick away, stay away from that? Uh, you know, I've personally never, I, I, I've done different real estate stuff in the past. I've personally never done that well on it. Um, I don't think it's that interesting of an asset class. I think, I think the tax benefits are interesting, right? So I think like our opportunity zone structures and they came out, massive tax benefits. That's, that's interesting. Um, but, but, but generally like, I, I've never really seen consistent 
double-digit returns with real estate in an unlevered way. Like a lot of those 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 higher returns are generated through leverage, and as most investors know, the problem with leverage is it introduces really binary outcomes. Uh, so in down downside scenarios, you you wind up with zero, and uh, for for returns that otherwise aren't that great, I've never never found that to be that that compelling. And then how about some of the more trendy stuff, uh, crypto, NFTs, the um, you know Web3 stuff that's been happening the last few years? Yeah, so it, it, I, I've really come full circle on the crypto thing. So I, I think, as you know, I was, I was uh, a big buyer of crypto, let's call it five years ago, four and a half, five years ago. Um, I've I've really uh, really moved away from crypto because I still I struggle with with the use cases um, the lack of use cases that developed around the crypto community. A lot of the conversation I hear today is the same conversation I heard four and a half five years ago, and you know with NFTs we can talk about that in more detail in the context of Masterworks. I think we we think NFTs are interesting, you know conceptually we, we don't personally. Have a lot of experience with them, um, so we 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 struggle with how to think about allocating to them. Um, but I, you know, I think I'm I'm more bearish on Bitcoin today than I was five years ago. Wow, that's a hot take. Um, you want to expand a little <laughs> bit on that? Well, it's it's just due to the lack of use cases, right? It's it's due to the lack of use cases and the very high correlation with the S and P. So I think if you go back to finance 101. Uh, the definition of a strategic asset class, something that should be included as part of an investment portfolio, is something that that beats inflation and is non-correlated. Um, if you look at Bitcoin, we've really seen huge degrees of volatility. I don't know what it's what it's sitting at today. I think it was thirty something thousand yesterday or the day before, right? So yeah, it's it, in the thirties. It's in the thirties, yeah. So it, you know, it's highly volatile. It it it. It kind of goes up, it goes down over long periods of time. I think you you can conclude that it's that it's definitely appreciating, um, but it's also highly correlated with public equities. So what what role does it play in a portfolio that's distinctly different than public equities? If it has a correlation factor of you know 0.6 or 0.7, I'm not sure if if the additional volatility really makes sense in the context of, of, of a high correlation factor. I think the other thing I struggle with, with with crypto generally is that I don't really believe that currencies are investments, right? I don't invest in the British pound. I don't invest in the euro. Um, currencies serve a purpose, but they're not, they're not, they're not necessarily an investment. So I, I, I think I just struggle with, with the role of Bitcoin more today than I did five years ago. Yeah, and your point is well taken, which is Bitcoin, you know, born, I guess, in 2008, really has never seen a new bearish cycle, right? It started in a, in, in a down market, but like, I guess you could say during the COVID mark time, it, it saw a short uh, collapse, but, you know, who knows what's going to happen in the next few quarters, a couple of years. Um, do you have any sense from your perspective, given your many different exposures to asset classes and the public markets? what you think of the market for the next, let's call it three quarters or three years? You know, what, one of the great things about running Masterworks is that we, we have the leading research team in the art market. And we, we really are by far the most sophisticated people in understanding art as an asset class. So we get access to all of the top research teams at every, every major private bank. And um, 
you know, I think consensus across the board from from the smartest people I know, which are those those CIOs, is that public equities are going to return mid single digits for the next decade. Um, now, you know that sounds bad on the surface for a lot of people who are who are newer to investing and have kind of had double digit returns for the past the past decade, but that's probably still going to be the best place to keep money, even though the returns are going to be far less. Yeah, because the historical uh, average is like closer to six to eight, right, for the stock market? I think that's right, yeah. Yeah, I think over the past 25 years, it's it's slightly above 10 now, if I recall correctly. Um, but I think you're right, depending on what, what period of time you're How measuring. far back you go, yeah. Yeah. So um, the one thing we didn't uh, click on is you obviously invest into the things that the companies that you can control or you have a significant influence on. But how about angel investing? Uh, any thoughts on that? I do limited amounts of angel investing, right? So, I, you know, I, I, um, I have less than, than 10 companies that, um, that I've actually put money into that I don't control. Um, you know, most of those historically <laughs> have not worked out, but many, many have. Um, I, I think you know. Look, I'm I'm a super hands-on entrepreneur. Like I I, I like uh, being able to control the outcome of something, just because I believe that early stage businesses take so many different pivots, and if if you can't control those pivots, it's hard to control the the outcome, right? Like you you may get lucky and you may bet on an entrepreneur who's great who just you know pivots around and figures that out and does really well, but. Um, I don't know. It's hard. So I, I've, I've personally myself, you know, always, always avoided it. And I, and I think we see that at scale too, right? Like venture funds that are successful tend to be venture funds that have lots of bets, since many don't work out, but the ones that that do work out, um, work out in a meaningful way. And um, it sounds like you spend most of your focus on the art investments and then your startups. Is that fair? Yeah, I mean, today it's really it's really masterworks. Um, you know, I have, a, I have a handful of businesses that um, that are related to, to ad, tech, ad tech stuff or content stuff that we we've started throughout the years that uh, I still have. But my focus today is really entirely on on masterworks. That that's a great segue. Um, let's double click on masterworks and everything that you're accomplishing there. So, for what it's worth, you basically have changed the game for investing into art fractional ownership, being able to get into these huge paintings that otherwise people couldn't have gotten into. When did that idea start for you? Because obviously, you've, I think you said 19 or 20 is when you started investing into art yourself. But when did that fractional concept come, come to mind? You know, it, it really it goes back to um, your question about, about you know, how I think about crypto. So I, when, I was, when I was kind of heavy into crypto five years ago, I was thinking about all these different crypto businesses, right? And, and we had... Lots of different ideas for different startups. Um, uh, I wasn't in a full-time operating role at the time, so I was kind of like, you know, we work with a handful of people that have worked with me in the past, kind of, uh, you know, trying to come up with different ideas. And Masterworks originally was a blockchain idea. The idea was that we would we would take these paintings and we would effectively tokenize them, right? Like people think of these as NFTs today, but issue NFTs for shares, and then have them have them freely tradable. And there was a big law firm who, who you know, and we won't we won't name, who was giving opinions at the time that a lot of this stuff wasn't securities. So we, you know, we got an opinion that it wasn't a security. We thought that 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 you know paintings didn't meet what's called the Howey test, 
um, and that we could just tokenize paintings on blockchain. And we quickly, within three or four months, figured out that wasn't the case and realized that the scope of how to solve the problem was just much bigger than what we were originally anticipating. But it was such a cool idea. You know, we were so excited about it. We, we just kept incrementally um, working on it and, and eventually came up with this, this, this structure, which was buy a painting, buy a you know, multi-million dollar artwork, um, file it as, as, a, as a public offering with the SEC. So one painting sitting in a company that gets filed with the SEC as a public, public offering, sell shares in that individual work of art, and then eventually we we build out things like trading markets around that, but that was the you know that was the very simple idea. How do you take these multi million dollar assets that historically have appreciated quite well and make them investable? And you've been taking advantage of some of the most recent uh, regulatory innovations as part of that, right? So could this be possible twenty years ago? Well, I think you know the answer to that question better better <laughs> better than anyone. <laughs> Um, but I, but I think, I think it, I think, you know, I, I think Reg A in general, um, it, at least makes this possible for, for a lot of companies. Now I got to say it, as you know, I mean, it's still not easy, right? I mean, I think at our, at our, uh, holiday party deck this year, we, we kind of reviewed some stats in the business. We did 700 and something SEC filings last year. Right, Reg so A is the, the the actual exemption that you're using, uh, which allows yeah. for you to take the offering public uh, for up to a $75 million offering, right, to both solicit and to go to unaccredited uh, at the same time, accredited or unaccredited. Yeah, and that and that's what we, we do for every every single painting. So, um, you know, we, we file that. We, um, uh, you know, we have other filings to support to support each of those offerings, but we're, we're doing one of those now every... Every five and a half days, so it's um, you know it's operationally very complex. So I'm going to want to double click in a second about actually how to pick good art because I'm the opposite of you. I don't think I know much about <laughs> art, but let's just talk about like the results. I mean, you just raised at a unicorn level, right? A monster yeah. round. So how does that happen? Like, how'd you get there? You know, I think I mean, look, the business is 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 interesting if you if you subscribe to this idea that art is the largest asset class that's never been securitized we like to compare art to venture and private equity arts roughly a one and a half trillion dollar asset class venture and private equity is three and a half trillion the key distinction that we talk about is there's nine thousand firms that operate in venture and private equity and there's only us that provide investment products and in art uh, you, you very quickly understand just the the magnitude of the opportunity and how much how much value can be can be created. So, you know, we we think we're in the super early innings of an asset class that's going to be really big over time and probably will become a staple of a portfolio at some point, right? Like at, I think 10 years from now, 20 years from now, people will think about allocating art very similar to how they think about allocating to real estate, um, public equities, or or fixed income. Um, you mentioned something interesting, which is um, you're one of the only players in town doing this. Why is that? Uh, why is, if, if the company, if the industry is doing so great and you're trailblazing it, why is there not more competition? Because it seems like in these other spaces adjacent to yours, there's more competition. I think, I think it's really the asset class, right? Like the, the asset class is um, 
quite hard to to navigate through. I mean, I, I spent 20 years kind of building building my own collection and, and, and really creating a lot of those relationships in the art market and understanding how it works. Um, I think it's part of it. It, it. You know, for, for most people who do have that, that experience from the art market, they just don't understand finance generally. They don't understand how to really run a retail platform, kind of the customer acquisition dynamic um, associated with that. Um, that's our best guess. I mean, this, you know, we, we'll talk about stats about the business, but this year we should buy over a billion dollars in art. That's never really been done before, right? Like, wow. This so scale, in 2022, you'll acquire a billion dollars of art. Yeah. And then sell yeah. that uh, fractionally. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah, so the so the business is growing quickly, and from from an art market perspective, they've they've definitely never never seen anything like that. But I think it's also becoming harder for people to compete with us because we we're, we just have such an information advantage that we're building, right? Like we we see so much data now from the private market, even on what paintings are being offered to us for. I think in I think last year we we saw over ten billion dollars in art that was offered to us. You know, we're buying two to three percent of what we see. Um, just yeah. as context, um, you would know better than me. How big is like Christie's in terms of how much art they sell? Well, it's very different because they sell a lot of art that we wouldn't consider investment grade. Got it. So um, if you just uh, pull out the investment grade, would you know that or? I wouldn't know that off the top of my head. I mean, I mean, broadly, you can think of the auction houses as doing somewhere between five and ten billion dollars a year, uh, each as an industry. Volume. Uh, not as an industry, but it, but each individually. Oh wow. Uh, Christie's and Sotheby's individually, and then Phillips is a is a third, but a distant third, and then and then you sort of have auction houses in China and, and elsewhere. So, not everybody gets to learn about our investing from the boss. Um, so I'm going to try to get a little one on one here for me and the listeners. So, how do I start investing into art? I mean, obviously, I could go on to Masterworks.com and you know sign up, get all of that information. But you know, I have the CEO here and the founders, so. Give me some advice. How do I navigate this? Yeah, I mean, I, I guess there's a couple of things that are important to to know about the art market, um, just fundamentals of, of art investing. So the first is that uh, appreciation is correlated to recency, meaning if you look at art created after World War II, the past 75 years, that segment of the market is what is appreciating most fast right now. We define that as contemporary art. Um, we measure that at, at roughly 14% a year uh, for the past the past 20 years. So that that segment is is the most interesting segment. If you go back in time, you have impressionist and modern art, which varies between seven and 10% a year. And then you go back centuries, artists like Rembrandt, and that segment of the market appreciates at one to two percent a year. So you have declining appreciation rate as you go back many generations uh, in time. Now, one of the things that's very interesting, and we've never actually answered this question from a um, from a research perspective, but it's very interesting that we don't see depreciation rates in any segments of the art market, right? We see artists like Rembrandt effectively stop appreciating and appreciate at inflation-like rates, but we don't we don't see those segments depreciate. And I think that that speaks to some of the store value characteristics um, in the asset class. But that's that's the first thing, right? So you 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 generally want to be investing in art created after World War II in, in today's world. And then it's really, it's really um, next most important to look at the artist market. And different artist markets have, have different dynamics, but 
uh, appreciation rate is most closely correlated to artist market. So if you get the artist wrong, even if you have you know an A plus plus example by uh, a third tier artist, it's it's still not going to have a great return because that artist market just isn't isn't um, isn't performing as well. How am I so, determining uh, a tier one versus tier three artist? Well, we look at lots of things. So we look at obviously the the appreciation rate of that artist market overall. We look at the liquidity of that artist market, which in our world means how many collectors are actually buying paintings uh, by that artist. Uh, one of the things we do is we we send interns to evening sales and they count the number of bidders in the in the room and they associate the bidders to each individual painting that's sold so we know how many bidders are on each individual work um, and then we, we look at other signals like cultural significance signals what museums are collecting which artists um, how long has the artist market uh, been in place what's the turnover how are average prices moving so there's there's lots of data like that that helps helps um, inform how we think about how we think about the market today we're only we're only buying works in 55 artist markets. I think that nut that list will go uh, up in size this year, but but it's still a relatively small subset. When you say artist market, are you referring to a specific artist? Yeah, like Picasso. So 55 artists that you focus on at Masterworks. Yeah. And so does that mean I should only be focusing on 55? Those 55? <laughs> It's, de- it's definitely a good indication if we're if we're buying it, but you know it's hard to know which of those we continue to buy versus which we're we're, we're no longer buying. Got it. Um, and do you pick those fifty five because they're going to have the best returns? They're the safest. The combination of both. Um, why not number yeah. fifty six through one hundred and six? I mean, we're we're increasing the number of, of markets, but but I do think in today's world, investors tend to be very um, headline return driven. So uh, let me use an example. So one, one of the artists that I think is super interesting, uh, which we've only done one offering of, is actually Monet. And Monet returns, um, I think his appreciation rate is somewhere around 7% per year. But when you look at the, the standard deviation in returns or his, his volatility, it's incredibly low meaning his, his return is very predictable and therefore his risk-adjusted return or Sharpe ratio is above one, which we think is, is super interesting, right? So you can take very little risk in investing in Monet's market, um, but your headline return is still only going to be, call it 7%. We still think that's a, that's a super interesting market for, for investors. We just don't really have a lot of those investors on the platform today that are looking for very low, you know, relatively low risk, low return type profiles. Usually they want a little bit more return for quote unquote their risk. Yep. Got it. Um, so how much money or what percentage of net worth should I be putting into art? It's a, it's a good question. There, there really is only one <clears throat> third party outside of Masterworks that's analyzed this question, which was, uh, which was City in uh, 2015. Our research team works with them. We're hoping that they, they publish an updated asset allocation model soon. But City at that point concluded somewhere between 1.4 and 4% with uh, two caveats. One is that they looked at all art. So they included Impressionist and Modern, Old Masters, like you know the lower return segment that, that we discussed. Um, and two, they, 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 they give a range 
And they really just, just said, depending on the investor's tolerance for illiquidity, they should move between 1.4 or, or 4%, 4% meaning they have a high tolerance for illiquidity. Um, so the, you know, that's, that's, I think, reasonable guidance. I think this is an asset class that's generally 5% or less. Um, we have investors that, that allocate more, but, but that's, that's probably the right, the right way for people to think about it. You raised a great point, which is liquidity timelines. How should I be thinking about art? Is that a three-month investment, a three-year investment, a 30-year investment? How should I be thinking about it? Yeah, we, we tell people to think of it as a, as a three- to ten-year investment horizon um, mm-hmm. for, for us to sell the painting. Now, that's changing a little bit because we, we have secondary markets, so we have people trading securities and paintings just like you would, you would trade shares and any, anything else. Um, you know, so we'll, we'll probably soften that in the future, but right now we're telling people to still assume that they can, they can hold the investment for three to 10 years um, and, and plan on that in, in terms of the, the, the horizon. Great. Um, I know the sports card industry a little bit better, and in sports cards, there's a number of different places where you can try to find third-party information to try to make your decisions on, whether it's like evaluating eBay, whether it's like this... Uh, group called PSA, there's BGS, there's these various like grading services, et cetera. Is there such a thing in art where I can, you know, find this information outside of, obviously you're probably going to say Masterworks has it, but um, that I could try to find this independent third-party information? Yeah, so the the cool thing about the art market is half of the art market trades at public auction. So you have a really big data set that you can use to understand how how the market is performing over time. Um, the the very first company to, to to kind of publish that data in a subscription format was this company called Artnet, which which still exists. So you can go to Artnet, you can create a create a subscription account and search historical price records for paintings. Artnet.com. Um, Artnet.com. There's one that we actually like a bit better called Art Price. Um, we just think the UX is better. Um, you know, it's a little bit more thoughtful in how, how things are presented. Um, so that's that's another one that we recommend. But but either of those are, are good to um, to get started with the art market. And riffing off of that, what kind of blogs do you like? Who do you follow on Twitter? What do you follow on Instagram? What do you read? Just you could say whatever content you use to soak up your information to navigate your decisions around art. You know, if we wanted to try to be like Scott, um, what are the things that we can be exposing ourselves? Even your art net and art price is already great. Yeah, I mean, look for the art for the art market. It's it's really hard. There's not material out there, and and it, just to to put that in, in reference, right? We're we're really the the only firm that does robust index construction on the asset class. Um, you know, there's 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 been a handful of other people, academics and otherwise, that have that have tried in the past, but we're really the only ones that maintain that index with a high degree of integrity from a data perspective. So there's there's not a lot. There's there's a report that Deloitte publishes on the art market generally um, on an annualized basis. It's not really on investing in art. It's more about the size of the market, the players in the market. It's a several hundred page report. Um, there's a firm called Art Tactic, uh, which we which we like as well. That has other other types of research reports. Um, but, you know, the, the art market really historically has been catered to ultra-wealthy collectors, right? Like those are the people who are buying and selling these $1 to $100 million paintings. And there, there hasn't been a lot of information built around how to think about it 
as an asset class, how to think about it as part of a portfolio, um, how to think about it as part of an asset allocation model. We're, we're doing a lot of that work for the first time. So if you weren't talking to me, a novice, but actually talking to somebody else who knew a lot about art and you wanted to like show off and impress them about where your predictions are, about where the art market is headed in the next couple of few years, what would you be saying to them? Well, we, we believe that our prices are correlated to, to growth um, in the top 1% on a global basis, right? So if you believe the top 1% are getting wealthier, the, the, you know, the billionaire crea- new billionaire creation dynamic, um, then you probably believe that art prices are going up. Um, I also think in, in a world where fixed income continues to pay close to zero, as you know, people are looking at alts, I think, in a big way, really unlike any other, any other time in history, these asset classes are just, just more and more interesting for, for all types of investors. You know, when we think about the risk to, to that thesis, like what, what causes our prices to go down, it's really things that hurt the top 1% on a global basis. So, for example, in 2016, either because of, of Brexit or capital controls in China, um, art prices dropped uh, independent of the S&P, which, which was up that year. So we, we think what those, those two factors potentially had an impact on the top 1% um, living in those, those parts of the world, which, which hurt, our, hurt our prices. So it's really just a bet on global wealth creation uh, at the you know at the very top end of that that one percent. But if I was going to try to put you on the spot and say three years out, not a long <laughs> time horizon, three years out, what are three artists you suggest we keep an eye out for? Well, the the, the most I mean, uh, three artists that we like. Um, you know, it's a good it's a good question. I mean, we 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 obviously think Basquiat's market is really the best probably the best risk-adjusted market there is. He's been appreciating between 18 and 19% for, for nearly nearly or approximately 20 years. That's pretty incredible. Absolutely. Um, his volatility is rel- relatively low. So we think that's, that's a really interesting market. And then, you know, we like lots of, of mid-career living artists. We, we've frankly been buying a lot of, a lot of Richter lately. Um, who's obviously not, not mid-career, but is still living. He's in his 90s. We've been buying a lot of Kusama lately. She's also, I believe, in her 90s. We really like her market. Uh, we, we bought a uh, Carmen Herrera, who I think is 101 years old now. So, you know, a lot of, a lot of, a lot of these living artists that we're buying are, are living, but, but barely, li- <laughs> barely living. Um, so those are, you know, those are some of the ones we like right now. Awesome. Um... Well, thank you so much. This has been an incredible, incredible conversation. You've really given us a whole range of discussion topics from, you know, one telling us about 65,000 Picasso pieces to saying it here that you are bearish on Bitcoin and that, you know, you gave us a great hint as to how to get better tax harvesting using a fund out there and giving us tricks like artprice.com or going after the Basquiat. So thank you very much, Scott, for joining us. And, you know, we look forward to the next time you come on. Thanks for having me. Smart Humans with Slava Rubin is a podcast brought to you by the team at Vincent. Any data, text, or other content in this podcast is provided as general market information and not as investment advice. Past performance is not necessarily an indicator of future results. For more information on alternative investing, check out Vincent at www.withvincent.com.